Today's scripture reading is found in Colossians 3, um, verses 12 to 17. The book of Colossians, chapter 3, verses 12 to 17. Let's hear the word of God. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and give whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on your love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. The word of God. Amen. It has been, uh, it's been quite wonderful to have Christine Poole with us. Um, Christine is a professor of theological ethics at Asbury Seminary. Uh, a Methodist evangelical seminary located in Kentucky. Um, she's also um, uh, the author of two widely acclaimed books, uh, Making Room and Living into Community. And um, she's also uh, a main spokesperson in the Christian church for the importance of community as God's gift and, and a voice also to challenge God's people about what it means and what it costs um, and what it promises to live together uh, deeply in community. Christine's just been with us for a couple of days, but already it seems like she's becoming a really good and important friend. And uh, so I'll invite you to, uh, to welcome her as she comes to preach God's Word. Good morning. It is so good to be with you this weekend, and I am grateful for the opportunity um, to be part of this vibrant community. Thank you for your welcome and for your most gracious hospitality and for your Canadian snow, which if this were Kentucky, we would be closed for a couple of days, the whole region, not just a few places. So this is very exciting. But the passage that we just heard read from Colossians is a remarkable blueprint for life-giving and good community. Paul writes in that passage, know who you are, that each of you is beloved of God, and live according to that identity. Tie it all together with forgiveness and love, and be thankful. It's not a huge list of demands, and surely there's not a lot of drama. But immediately we wonder, or at least I wonder, really, could it be that simple? And I would say, perhaps not. But surely, this is a place to start. The details of our life together in community are always messy. But there is something profoundly important here. John Wesley captured it when he wrote that true religion is a combination of gratitude and benevolence. Gratitude to God and love for one another. Gratitude and love. And they certainly are at the center of Christian life and community. 
Paul begins his letter to the Colossians saying that he and his co-workers always thank God for the faith and the love of the church in Colossae. He writes that the gospel is bearing fruit among them as they have come to understand the grace of God. And he prays for their strength and endurance while they are joyfully giving thanks to God. And then in chapter 2, after writing about the supremacy of Christ and Jesus' ministry on their behalf, Paul says, now continue your life in Christ, built up in him and abounding in thanksgiving. And then Paul begins chapter 3 and says, since Christ has blessed you in so many ways, giving you life and power and a future, put to death Kill everything that's evil in you. The impurity, the evil desires, the greed. Get rid of anger and malice and lying. Take off those miserable old clothes. That's the image he's using. Those miserable old clothes that you've worn in the past and get dressed in your new outfits. Strip off the old practices and put on your new clothes. Clothes that help you look like Jesus. Clothes that help you be what you were meant to be. And then he describes the new clothes or the new practices. And in verses 12 through 15, he encourages the community to dress in compassion, humility, meekness, patience, and a willingness to bear with each other. You know, they're all aspects of love, care, and kindness toward the other person. They're very relational very understated practices, and yet they're crucial to community. Compassion, humility, meekness, patience. There's really nothing flashy here, but practices that make life together possible. And then he says, above all, clothe yourselves with love and be thankful. And in fact, he repeats the theme of thankfulness and gratitude three times in just three verses. So Paul is saying, put on the new clothes, and all these new clothes are held together with love and giving thanks, with the practices of love and gratitude. And these new clothes represent new selves, not just external behaviors that we take on and off. They represent transformed hearts that have been remade, that have been recreated through the grace of God. I think at this point there are so many different ways that we could go from here, so many insights to pursue from this passage, but what I'd like to do this morning is to focus on gratitude as a fundamental aspect of our Christian identity and life and community. The way that Paul talks about gratitude and giving thanks in this passage helps us to see that gratitude is a communal, it's a community practice. There is surely an individual dimension but it is a practice of good community. It is fundamentally relational. And it makes living in community both bearable and beautiful. And without gratitude, life in community quickly becomes unbearable. Grace and gratitude, we know, are at the heart of the Christian life. If we really understand our lives as defined and redeemed by Jesus' grace, by the costly grace of Christ, then gratitude is the fitting human response. It's our distinctive posture 
Thanksgiving, the Apostle Paul wrote, is what characterizes God's holy people. And failure to give God thanks, Paul says, is idolatry. He says it's idolatry. In Romans 1, Paul says that at the root of human sin is the refusal to trust God and to honor him and a failure to give God thanks. And in his discussion of this passage, Martin Luther suggests that ingratitude is at the root of all evil. And that's a view that's echoed by a lot of other theologians and philosophers throughout history. So grace and gratitude belong together. If the essence of God is grace, Karl Barth said, then the essence of human beings as God's people is our gratitude and thanks. And he says further, we become new creatures by being thankful. So we have God's grace and our gratitude. It's not surprising then that thanksgiving, gratitude, and praise are at the center of worship. We just experienced that this morning, right? Thanksgiving and praise, gratitude, shout from the Psalms. That's what we heard in Psalm 92 that we read responsibly. It's good to praise the Lord, to proclaim your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night. Gratitude fills our hymns and praise songs. We just sang, give thanks to the risen Lord. Or think of the familiar song by Andre Crouch, how can I say thanks for the things you've done for me? His song, To God Be the Glory. How can I say thanks for the things you've done for me? Or Matt Redmond's song that we just sang, bless the Lord, O my soul, for all your goodness, I will keep on singing 10,000 reasons for my heart to find. And of course, worship itself is a fundamental expression of praise and thanks. Communion is really understood as the great thanksgiving. And one commentator who wrote on John Calvin's work said that for Calvin, communion, or the Eucharist, is the liturgical enactment, the liturgical acting out of the theme of grace and gratitude. Because in communion, in the Eucharist, we have faith in God's promises confirmed and gratitude awakened and mutual love encouraged. In fact, Calvin basically argued that human beings could be distinguished from the rest of creation by, quote, our ability to reflect God's glory in a conscious response of thankfulness. He was sort of saying that that's what makes human beings special the thanks were able to return to God for all of God's goodness. In fact, he argued it so much so that this writer says that Calvin comes very close to equating the image of God, the imago dei, with the practice of gratitude. So human gratitude for Calvin is the correlate of God's goodness. And following him, Bart wrote that if God's grace is the voice, then human gratitude is the echo. I think for me that really captures it. In his poem, Gratefulness, um, George Herbert, the 17th century poet, pleads for a form of gratitude that lives within his entire being. Just listen to a couple of lines from it. It's very beautiful, I think. Thou that hast given so much to me, give one thing more, a grateful heart. Not thankful when it pleases me, as if thy blessings had spared days, but such a heart whose pulse may be thy praise. 
And I just think that's the most powerful image of, of what Herbert's asking for there, which is much more than an occasional impulse to say thank you. He wanted his every heartbeat to be thankfulness and God's praise. He gives us a picture of a heart, a body, a life pulsing with gratitude, alive with gratitude. So in response to who God is, to God's goodness and love, we offer praise. And in response to our experience of blessing or grace for the things God has done, we offer our thanks or gratitude. So our posture for the grace and blessings we've received is gratitude. So gratitude and grace are at the heart of our relationship with God, but they're also central to our life together. But I think mostly we've tended to overlook the significance of gratitude as a significant practice for community life, for living together. And yet think about how hard it is to hang in there with difficult people or troublesome community just because we should. And how much more gladly we do it when our faithfulness comes from a grateful heart. Or think about how burdensome hospitality can feel when we have to do it and how joy-filled it can be when we're offering welcome because we've experienced welcome and grace. Recently, there's been attention to gratitude, quite a lot of attention to gratitude in, um, in relation to individual well-being. Some of you will be familiar with some of the writings on how important it is to individual health and, and um, happiness. But there's still very, very little written about it's important to relationships within community. And yet each of us probably has a similar sad story of working really hard on something, maybe as a gift for someone, and then they didn't say thank you. Or they just pushed it aside, or they trashed it quickly, or they acted as if they were entitled to it. Or maybe you've helped someone over a long period and they never acknowledged what it cost you or offered a word of thanks. Now this is complicated terrain. Um, because if gifts spring from a grateful heart, then we don't give them to get something in return. Nevertheless, expressions of gratitude are important to ongoing relationships. Or maybe you've spent time with someone who always notices what's missing, always sees the faults or the missteps or disappointments first. This is not a happy experience. Or think about people who engage in chronic grumbling or complaining or a person who only ever talks about how much better things used to be. It's very destructive. And gratitude is about far more than good manners or being polite. It involves a posture, it involves a way of being that's closely connected to who we are in Christ. And I'm not sure we recognize just how destructive grumbling and complaint and ingratitude are to our communities. I think it can be helpful to think about gratitude as operating at three different levels. We have thanksgiving and praise to God. Gratitude then in response to other people, either for who they are or for what they've done. And then gratitude more as a, a posture, an overall posture for life. And we can, we can respond in gratitude to specific gifts that we've been given or to the person who's given them to us and we can allow what one writer called the giftedness of our total existence to shape the way we view and live in the world. 
I think all three are actually closely related, in part because understanding how much we've received from God and recognizing how much God loves us frees us to be grateful to one another and for one another. It frees us to affirm and cherish the other person without being afraid that somehow affirmation or appreciation of someone else might diminish us. And gratitude to God and to one another come together in how we respond to our communities. When we are grateful for and to one another, we recognize other people as God's gifts and presence in our lives. And I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer is very helpful on this. When we understand gratitude as the fitting response to the grace we've received, we come into community, he says, or into relationships, not as demanders, but as thankful recipients. In his book, Life Together, Bonhoeffer writes that the more thankfully we receive what's been given to us, the stronger and deeper our community grows. Think about how different that is from our tendency today to think about ourselves as consumers and to ask very regularly, even in relationships, if we're getting an, a good enough return on our investment. We wonder if this community or this church or the small group we're going to or the person that we're close to is meeting our needs adequately. And this is ultimately a very unhelpful way to look at community, just as it's a deeply problematic way of viewing our spouses or our churches. Of course our needs and our desires matter, but not as the primary lens. If we start with gratitude for what we've been given, community is much more pleasant and beautiful, and it's easier to address the problems. Of course, gratitude can be distorted if we think Christians are always supposed to be smiling and cheerful, even in the face of suffering or injustice, or that somehow, to live gratefully, we deny the misery and evil around us. And really, that's not what I'm talking about here. Gratitude is about knowing that we are held secure by a loving God, and that ultimately the God we worship is trustworthy and good, despite the sorrow that we might encounter along the way. A commitment to living gratefully also is not an escape from responsibility, nor should it be used as a weapon where we tell people to count their blessings or cheer up so we can avoid the more difficult task of walking with them through grief. Also, it's important to be careful not to accuse people of ingratitude when actually what they're doing is being truthful about the problems that they see because surely dissent is not the same as ingratitude. And gratitude's not a substitute for pursuing justice, but a posture of gratitude can shape a larger context that makes it possible to pursue justice and truthfulness over the long term and in ways that are life-giving. Just as gratitude gives life to communities, ingratitude sucks out everything good until life itself drains away and discouragement and discontent take over. Ingratitude toward God and human beings is a terrible thing, but it often comes dressed in other clothing, comes as restlessness or constant concerns about self-fulfillment or entitlement or irritation at not being properly valued or recognized 
But once a culture of complaint is established, it spreads through a community like an infection. So how might we make more room for gratitude? And first I would say, gratitude and ingratitude are closely tied to what we notice. If we focus mostly on flaws in our congregations or in our families or in our spouses or communities, that's what will dominate our attention because there are always things that will disappoint us. Making room for gratitude involves making choices about what we notice, what we give our attention to. We can get into the habit of also noticing what is good, into the habit of seeing through the eyes of kindness and generosity and grace. Again, this doesn't mean that we ignore evil or wrongdoing when we see it, or that we're free to be complacent, but only that our primary lens is one of grace and gratitude. I think most of us have been trained to look for problems and to solve them. We're very good at this, and it's an important skill, but we also need to be more accomplished in looking for and recognizing what's good. Second, we can make room for gratitude by rejecting responses of malice and envy in community. Surely there are times when things are difficult, but anger and malice and envy are extremely powerful in closing down community, in fracturing communication, and in destroying relationships. These are the dangerous old clothes that we've been warned about in scripture over and over again. When we spend most of our time thinking about how we've been offended or overlooked or misunderstood or how someone else always gets the credit or the recognition or gets their way, we are courting disaster. Soren Kierkegaard famously observed that envy is a small town sin. It's a destroyer of community because it feeds on comparisons and comparisons are so easy and constant in close community. Envy crowds out room for gratitude and love and ends up distorting every interaction. It's been described as sorrow for another's good. It involves wanting what someone else has and not wanting them to have it. That's why we try to hide envy, because it is so ugly. It's a hidden sin because it's such an awful vice. It really is the worst clothing. And Jean Vanier has written that envy is like a devastating plague that comes from people's ignorance or lack of belief in their own gifts. When we compare ourselves to other people, there's always some way that we come up short. And at the core of envy is an absence of gratitude for the gifts that we've been given. Envy and comparison generate malice and hypocrisy, along with misery and resentment. And Henry Nouwen has written that when we're in the grip of envy, we find it difficult to rejoice that someone other than ourselves is given a gift. And in fact, we can only fully enjoy God's generosity toward others when we truly know how much God loves us. I think we can also make room for gratitude by resisting the tendency to grumble. And grumbling, as I said before, is a highly contagious disease that is terribly destructive to community. You can think about the grumbling of the children of Israel in the desert. After their miraculous liberation, 
they complained. Actually, they complained a lot. But there's another example in The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. He talks, he has this passage on grumbling that has really stayed with me. And he talks about how a person, or shows really, how a person can go from grumbling to becoming a grumble. Think about the shift there from grumbling to becoming a grumble. He powerfully captures the distinction between grumbling as an occasional frustrated response to something and grumbling basically as a way of life and describes how you can kind of start out in a grumbling mood, but that somehow eventually you come to embrace the mood until you're defined by the mood and then the grumble goes on forever like a machine. And so he captures the misery, the danger of not just complaining occasionally, but allowing grumbling to become a way of life until that's all that's left of the person is the grumble. And that is a terrible image, it has a terrible impact on communities and congregations. And of course, the cure is gratitude and truthfulness. Also, I think we can make room for gratitude by recognizing that more is not always better. We spend a lot of our time wanting more and wanting better, whether it's in terms of things or nicer houses or more functional or attractive bodies. How often do we find ourselves thinking, you know, if I were just a little bit better sh in better shape, or if my children were just a little bit more successful, or if I only had a little more income or recognition, then I would be really happy. And sometimes we need to just stop ourselves and rejoice in what we have. A capacity for gratitude is tied to a capacity for contentment. Seeing what we do have, not always wanting more, but rejoicing in what we've been given or accomplished. Always wanting more good things can be unhelpful. Nevertheless, it can be difficult to live in the tension between being grateful for what we have been given and striving for excellence and growth. But given our cultural emphasis on growth and success, which tends to be how we define excellence, gratitude is often overlooked, and contentment is misinterpreted as an absence of drive or vision. But gratitude and contentment are not at odds with growth and improvement. I think they create the life-giving context in which we and those around us can move forward toward excellence. A posture of gratitude does not eliminate the annoyances or disappointments or even the real difficulties of everyday life, but it does open up a bigger perspective. People whose lives are filled with gratitude are rarely those who have had it easy in life, often the most striking examples of gratitude. We find in the midst of difficult, sometimes heartbreaking circumstances, where people find reasons to continue to hope and be thankful. Think about how often people with substantial resources return from short-term missions trips, truly astonished at the culture of gratitude they encountered among people whose lives are actually very difficult and sometimes demanding. And finally, we make room for gratitude when we build it into our everyday routines. Mealtimes are a natural moment for expressions of gratitude. Families can set aside a time for gratitude, but also a place. Sometimes it's a refrigerator door or a bulletin board to post daily or weekly reasons for thanks. People can get back into the habit of writing notes of encouragement and affirmation and gratitude to one another. 
We can create settings in which we regularly have opportunities to express our thanks and celebrate the gifts we've received. We can begin each day with an expression of gratitude to God and to those around us and end the day by recounting moments of grace and goodness, recounting the particular blessings of the day. We really do become a grateful people and a grateful community through daily, ordinary acts of gratitude and remembering. We can become more intentional about telling the stories, the biblical, the community, the personal stories of God's faithfulness and goodness and grace to us. That helps us to experience God's grace in other people's lives as well. It means making more space for gratitude, being more intentional about noticing the ways in which we as individuals and communities are blessed and giving testimony to the goodness of God and those around us. We make room for gratitude by remembering what God has done in Christ. We can challenge ourselves to remember that we are beloved of God, and so is our annoying neighbor and grumpy relative. We can remind ourselves and one another, we are God's new creations made for glory. So what happens when a community is reshaped or reformed by a regular practice of gratitude? Actually, I think they become communities of celebration, communities of Sabbath, and communities of hospitality. The practice of gratitude helps our communities become pictures, sort of become icons of lives well-lived, content, joyful, beautiful lives, little glimpses into life as God intended it. A life of gratitude finds countless reasons for celebration. In fact, I think celebration is a gift that bursts out of gratitude for God's goodness, for a person, for something good that's happened, from having survived something hard. Some of you are familiar with the work of Jean Vanier, the founder of the L'Arche Communities that welcome people with disabilities into the heart of community life. He has amazing insights into celebration. But he writes that celebration brings us into communion with God and each other through prayer, thanksgiving, and good food. Seems like very, three very basic elements, prayer, thanksgiving, and good food. He says a celebration is a sign of heaven that makes present the goals of the community in symbolic form and so brings hope, and a new strength to take up everyday life again with more love. He's saying celebrations are communal experiences of joy and thanksgiving that make present the very things that we're aiming for. Our deepest celebrations link together joy and sacrifice. Loss and beauty are often intertwined. That's what we see in the Passover. That's what we see in the Eucharist. Like gratitude, celebration is not for the purpose of hiding from difficulty or sorrow, but for remembering that God has been present through it all and that we don't need to be afraid and that we're part of a community that will move forward faithfully and together. Second, because gratitude toward God and others is connected to trust in a God who loves us, a life of gratitude brings profound freedom from fear and anxiety. 
Some contemporary versions of fear and anxiety take the form of overwhelming, unrelenting busyness. And if gratitude is tied to paying attention, it's also tied to slowing down long enough to notice anything, especially when it's small or fragile. And I think the risk here is that unless we slow down and take time to be thankful, we won't be able to see anything except what it is that still needs to be done or what it is that's missing. And this suggests the importance of the practice of Sabbath and its crucial connection to gratitude. If we don't pause long enough to shift our attention, the practice of gratitude will remain very difficult. Communities characterized by gratitude, though, will trust God enough to practice Sabbath, God's gift of time, a gift that says we have enough. We can stop for a little while and rest and worship. We are more than just workers. And finally, I think the practice of gratitude can free us from fear and open us to the unexpected gifts from God that come to us in the form of strangers. When we recognize and rejoice in the extraordinary welcome we have received in Christ, gratitude in response turns our heads and our hands and our hearts and our vision outward toward the world in welcome and hospitality. Gratitude frees us to embrace the mutual blessing in making room for strangers in our midst. And then gratitude sustains our welcome so that when things become difficult, our responses don't become grudging or cynical. For followers of Jesus, there are endless opportunities to offer thanks. Gratitude in response to grace is inexhaustible. If our lives and our ministries are acts of mercy or justice don't spring from gratitude, from the sense that we live graced lives, we will gradually shrivel up. Without gratitude and grace, our efforts at hospitality and witness and outreach and service and love are stunted and often burdensome. But when our lives and our hearts pulse with gratitude, when our relationships and our communities and congregations are shaped by grace and gratitude and thanksgiving, our efforts are life-giving, and we come to look more and more like the beloved children of God that we're meant to be. So let's pray together. Gracious and grace-filled God, we thank you for your faithfulness and love that desires to make us whole and holy. We ask you to transform our hearts and our vision to see more clearly the giftedness of our entire existence and the grace and gifts you offer us every day. Forgive our ungrateful hearts, we pray, and help us to grow in grace and gratitude. For we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.